Hello and welcome. Speaking to Legends podcast. This show is a quest for ideas, insights, and stories from the lives of the most successful hedge fund managers. We learn about their spectacular careers, we share their life lessons, and dissect their investment techniques. The legend of today is Francesco Filia. Francesco is the CEO of Fasanara Capital, a London-based quantitative investment firm. Francesco started his career at JP Morgan and Merrill Lynch and co-founded Fasanara in 2011. In this episode, we learn about Francesco's days on the sell side, the underlying principles on which he built his hedge fund, why he is bearish on the market but bullish on the economy, and why he thinks VAR and standard deviation are bad measures of risks and what is a better measure. We close this episode by Francesco's thoughts on the outlook for the asset management industry and why firms don't need to be visionaries, but just have to be realistic. Let's get right into it. Hello, Francesco. Uh, Really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. I want to kickstart this show uh, by asking you about your background. Uh, Can you please tell us about your early days uh, in finance? Uh, How did you get interested uh, and uh, where did you start your career? I studied uh, at University Bocconi in Milan. I studied derivatives uh, and finance. It was, uh, you know, from the very beginning, my passion. I don't know how I really ended up uh, there, uh, but, you know, I was not attracted by any other discipline as much as I was by by financial markets. I did not know anything about financial markets, so it was completely just an impulse and, uh, and a feeling for it. I was not even following particularly the stock markets or not at all. I was not reading the financial newspapers and none of that. It was purely just a feeling, uh, but it worked out well. I mean, I, I found out that uh, I was uh, more and more passionate about it. And uh, uh, my dream was actually at the time to continue my academic uh, uh, career or to start an academic career and stay within university. Uh, I tried to work with my professor, uh, which would eventually become the, the dean of the university in Bocconi, uh, but I failed. <laughs> it didn't work out for me. Uh, then after a while, I got lucky because I applied for an internship at uh, JP Morgan. That was in 1997. I was at my third year of university. I got lucky because it was the first CV that I ever sent out. I got interviewed uh, pretty much immediately. I have to say that I sent out another 50 CVs and none of the other ones replied. <laughs> so I was super lucky because the, the first one that I sent out was the only one that I got a reply uh, for. And, uh, um, and it was JP Morgan and they accepted to take me as an intern, uh, despite the fact that I had not graduated. And uh, um, the internship proved to be incredibly uh, interesting. I was working for guy called Roberto Fumagalli, head of research for, Mil- for the Italian office in JP Morgan. That was a, and it was a very, very informative experience where I learned really a lot. The learning curve was super steep at the time. Um, and I was also lucky because at the end of the internship, which lasted six months, um, I, I got hired fully with a forward starting date to allow me to come back to university and get a degree, which was a requirement under their internal policy, which I did. I went back to university. At the time, I had less of a motive to complete my studies quick because I had already an employment contract in my hands. So I took it easy. And by the time the forward starting date um, got, uh, which was in September of 1998, I was not graduated yet, but they st- I, I still could work for, for, for the bank. And uh, I eventually graduated uh, you know, over the course of the following uh, uh, few months. Um, and. Um, so I, I discovered, let's say, my love for derivatives as time was going by. Um, you know, like it, it, it began in the university, continued in, uh, in JP Morgan. Uh, it started in JP Morgan as, uh, as research. So I was an analyst in uh, fixed income research. Uh, and then by being an analyst, I realized that uh, I wanted more and more to, to make my hands dirty with the derivatives, also from the viewpoint of uh, sales and marketing and trading. And so I eventually, uh, requested to move uh, into that uh, side of the business. Um, they didn't take it very nicely. They were not very happy about it. Um, I have to say that the experience in fixed income research uh, also after full employment was a very good one. At the time I was working for um, you know, very strong uh, um, characters. Uh, uh, my boss was Laurent Franzolet, 
and, uh, and above him there was uh, David Theobald uh, and Jan Lois. Uh, um, and uh, one of my colleagues was Matt King that has uh, since uh, uh, become very famous in the industry and has made amazing research. And uh, uh, it was a very, very uh, uh, incredible experience. I learned a lot, but at the same time, I wanted to move into the area of this full time. Uh, JP Morgan didn't accept, and that's why I decided to offer myself to uh, another bank. And the first bank that I requested, <laughs> I was lucky again, because it was at Merrill Lynch. I sent a CV to, uh, to, um, to, to Nazaro Angelini and his team in uh, Merrill Lynch. Uh, it was year 2000, and they, they accepted, accepted me for an interview, and they accepted to give me a job in uh, derivatives. I have to say that uh, I didn't qualify much. It was not, I didn't have the right credentials to be taken for the job, because typically at the time, you would be taken for a certain job only if you had done it already, which was a bit of a problem, because like, if it was your first job in something, you could not show any track record on it. So you needed somebody that could uh, be willing to listen to you and give you the, uh, you know, the benefit of the doubt. And I found it in Mary Lynch. I started off and there. It was June of year 2000. It sounds like the luck uh, had a role to play, at least uh, on the initial stages of, of your career. And as you kind of transitioned from uh, JP Morgan to Merrill, uh, what did you do there? Uh, and uh, how was that experience like? I was in a team uh, of uh, uh, people looking at derivatives for uh, Italian banks and corporates and uh, um, public entities. And the team disintegrated after six months that I was on the job. So that was quite of a shock, uh, a shock and awe experience because uh, um, I lost all of my colleagues uh, six months into the job. And, uh, you know, the other colleagues, a part of the team, they went to take the most uh, attractive bits of the business, which at the time were financial institutions, public entities. And the last bit of it was corporates. Um, which nobody took, and therefore I found myself alone doing it, uh, not knowing much of what had to be done, uh, knowing only the technical part of derivatives, but really not the gritty nitty of how you trade with them, you, you price them, and everything else. And uh, so, like six months into the job, I found myself alone in, uh, in leading this uh, team of one on corporate derivatives uh, for Italian corporates, uh, and uh, I had to learn it by doing. And uh, uh, I, I, I remember the time as, you know, incredibly interesting. You know, Italian corporate derivatives would become uh, famous a few years down the road uh, for the wrong reasons, because uh, they were utilized by Italian corporates, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, at the limits of uh, regulations or even beyond the limits uh, as a way to um, uh, do window dressing and as a way to book uh, net income when in reality you had just sold an option and, 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 and received the premium upfront. Uh, at the time there was a, the accounting uh, regulation of IAS 39, that was allowing derivatives to be off balance sheet counting. And therefore you could sell an option and book the premium as an net income. And obviously this was uh, obviously something that should never have been done, but it was being done by a lot of corporates and uh, it would result in a disaster come 2003 with a big uh, default of uh, Parmalat and, and, and big scandals in a number of other Italian corporates at the time. And, and for me, it was like a, um, you know, it was a, you know, a birth by fire because obviously like it was incredibly hectic uh, and, uh, and, and it was history in the making. You know, Italian corporates would be famous uh, after that because of what the, it was being done. Luckily enough, I was not too expert on it, so I didn't do too many damages, but you know, I was involved into into, into that business and, uh, um, and it was again something that I, I learned a great deal uh, from. Uh, I learned uh, how to you know, uh, structure and price derivatives uh, of various natures uh, from commodity to, uh, to real estate, but uh, primarily fixed income and equities. Uh, I learned how to look at uh, asset liability uh, matching for corporations and uh, um, how to uh, hedge the translation risk for a corporate uh, that is uh, active in more than one country uh, and things like that. So it was an incredibly, uh, incredible experience uh, that, uh, that would become uh, helpful for the, you know, uh, for, for, for forever in my career. Um, after this experience in Italian corporates, I moved uh, in the middle market, pan-European. Uh, as a consequence of that, I was uh, pushed into outside of my territory, which was Italy. And I was not too happy about it at the time, but it resulted that to be a very lucky move, uh, a proof of the fact that change is always for the better, and we should always welcome change and not be 
too much afraid of it because, you know, we may not know it right at the time, but then eventually things would evolve in such and such a way in which we, we thank that it, it has happened. And it was the case for me because in the pan-European market, uh, I, I could feel like uh, my expertise could be uh, put to the best use. Uh, I, I, I managed to, you know, uh, become a good producer in that market and to make a lot of business with the, uh, internationally with, with a lot of uh, mid-cap investors and also, um, you know, uh, external clients to the firm uh, for a number of years. Uh, I eventually became head of Europe for mid-caps and principal investors, uh, a team that, uh, uh, that I led in the years of the crisis, of the Lehman crisis, because by, by now it, it was already 2006, 2007, 2008. Uh, and uh, like uh, my expertise in derivatives came to, uh, came to use because like uh, uh, we could do some amazing transactions. And uh, for example, like uh, in 2007, at the beginning of 2007, without wanting to be too technical about it, but uh, the first dislocations of a very illiquid market uh, uh, showed up. Uh, and it was the first quarter of 2007 where you could see that the CDS spread on a corporate bond was trading much wider than the uh, sorry, it was trading much inside the yield on the underlying security. Uh, for example, in, in, the, in, the, in the case of um, uh, investment banks, you could see the so-called negative basis package, which measured the difference between the two, being uh, anywhere between 100 and 200 basis points. And this was just the beginning of the crisis, right? The market would still rally up on the equity side, but it was the first few warning signals, warning shots of the crisis to come uh, uh, you know, 18 months later. And uh, our need at the time was not so much to play with the negative basis packages, but more to edge credit portfolios and also equity portfolios. And for example, one way to edge was, would have been to buy puts on uh, um, underlying securities, like being, for example, you were bearish Lehman, you wanted to get a put on Lehman, and your alternative would have been to take a 20, 30% out of the money put uh, six months out uh, on the underlying uh, Lehman stock. Uh, that would have cost you a fortune, more than 10 points up front. Uh, and, and you would have been wasting money despite having the right view. Because comes six months from then, you would have wasted a lot of premium and you would have had to roll your position if you still believed into the idea. But guess what? There was actually an equivalent to that, which was uh, inexpensive. And it was an hidden optionality or like a, a real option, if you want, uh, or like a more simply like a proxy edge, which was negative basis by means of which you could buy the bond uh, of Lehman, uh, yielding, let's say, and here I don't remember exactly the, the, the numbers, or not too precisely, but uh, let's say Eurabo plus, uh, you know, 200 basis point or 250 basis point, and hedge it uh, fully in a parasite swap with the, uh, a CDS uh, uh, on, uh, on Lehman as a deliverable under the CDS contract, um, but spending as a premium much less than that LIBO plus 250, which actually was a LIBO plus 350 now that I think about it. And you could edge it at 200, 250 basis points. So you could have a negative basis package where you own the bond and you own the full par uh, CDS on it um, and you get paid for it. Uh, you get paid at LIBO plus 100, which is LIBO plus 350 minus the 200 of the cost of the CDS. So you have a package that yields you LIBO plus 100 basis point and effectively makes you be a uh, short on Lehman, because like uh, if there is a credit event on Lehman, uh, you can deliver the bond back to the CDS provider at par, and therefore you can enjoy the difference and, and make money. So effectively you're bearish uh, Lehman. And guess what, the CDS package lasts as long as the bond and the CDS do last, and at the time it was a five-year package. And so comes uh, uh, September of 2008, when Lehman uh, filed for chapter 11, and effectively, that was a great event under the CDS contract. And that gave you the opportunity to deliver the bond that you had bought in February, March of 2007 at 82% of the face value. Uh, you could sell it back to your CDS provider, which at the time was Morgan Stanley, at par. And you could book a gain of uh, these 18 points on, uh, on a position that was a Lehman bond that at the time, in the first quarter of 2007, was extremely and very easily leverageable. Everybody would be giving you, all the other banks would be giving you on a bond like Lehman, which was considered to be cash, uh, 80, 90% leverage at very tight cost. So your, your unlevered return would be 18%, 
on um, uh, 82% spent uh, before leverage. So a very nice, uh, sizable, chunky payoff uh, of a negative basis package, which was the equivalent of a put, an equity put on the market, uh, but uh, much more inexpensive and uh, uh, dressed up in such a fashion in which uh, you could uh, uh, withstand to have this position for a long period of time without burning too much cash. By the way, you know, uh, things like these are always available in the market. It's just a matter of looking for them and be, uh, be let's say, versatile across different asset classes and the derivatives so that they connect all of them. Uh, and I would say that, uh, you know, like, um, you know, uh, we shouldn't be fooled by the fact that it was a positive carry for a, for a bearish play, which is very unusual, right? Normally, if you want to be bearish, you want to have the optionality, but not the certainty, not the, the obligation. You need to pay a premium. In this case, it was not the case. You, get, you were getting paid to hold a short position. But guess what? You, know, you were getting paid very little. So there was an opportunity cost. Not a cost, but an opportunity cost. At the time, in 2007, the curve was 6-7%. So to get paid only level plus 100 was, uh, or actually uh, only 100 basis points, which was the net that was resulting from the package, was actually not very much. And uh, you, would, you wouldn't be very happy. So the equivalent of it today would be something you know that you would feel uh, it's more expensive thank you francesco for uh, going in so much detail on this one it certainly sounds like uh, it was uh, a rather neat trade uh, and uh, very well thought through that in the end i uh, gave the investors uh, desired uh, payoff uh, with even a positive carry and as we kind of move forward with your career, and I want to just learn a bit more about your transition from Merrill to setting up your own fund. How did it happen? And what were the first years like? My, my top colleague and friend at the time of Merrill Pietro, Pietro Fabri, and we had built the team together at Merrill Lynch at the time. Uh, and uh, um, uh, we decided to leave the firm to set up uh, Fasanar Capital, which we did uh, in April of uh, 2011. Um, and uh, uh, we set it up as an hedge fund. Um, we uh, we you know, took quite a bit of a bold decision because uh, it was the peak of the career at Merrill. There was really no reason to, to leave otherwise. Yes, there had been the crisis, the Lehman crisis, but at the same time, uh, uh, like um, it had uh, it had worked out well for us because you know like uh, you know by being able to leverage on all of these uh, market dislocations uh, by being versatile across asset classes across financial instruments uh, across the capital structure by being able to roam across uh, we were quite in advantage position so it worked out well uh, for us I would say that um, typically in banks uh, you don't have the same career paths very easily because typically the banks are organized by silos so you're either fixed income or equity either commodities or uh, real estate and they try to and they tend to try to specialize you also to be able to control you better and uh, so our 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 team that was uh, so cross border and was so um uh, like uh, diagonally across the organization with people from equity people from fixed income all 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 part of the team uh, was quite of an exception still uh, to date i don't know of many banks that uh, were able to put together with these uh, uh, transdisciplinary uh, teams. But nevertheless, I think it's the right thing to do and it worked out very well. At some point, we had the option to, to leave the bank by uh, using uh, some of our uh, clients that they had profited with us uh, over the years and that they trusted us with, uh, with a bit of capital. So we set up Fasanara Capital as an hedge fund and, uh, and then Fasanara Capital followed the same line of thoughts uh, and uh, the same line of, you know, line of thinking of uh, of, uh, um, of um, the, the, my previous career in, in Mary Lynch and before that in, in uh, JP Morgan, to be opportunistic and go wherever the, the opportunity would take us, wherever there would be a valuable opportunity. Not to be classified by as a class, uh, not to be classified by labeling or marketing uh, labeling of the strategy at hand, but to be like open-minded and to go where there would be a need uh, for us to go. And this again was a bit of a, stumbling block at the beginning because uh, in the asset management industry, in the hedge fund industry, they like to look at you siloed again. They like to see that you are specialized in your own uh, market segment. They like to know that you are good at long short equity or commodity play or fixed income. And if it's fixed income, they like to know if you are really good at IG, investment grade or uh, high yield. And they don't like to see you too much uh, multidisciplinary. 
that in, in the decision to be taken at the beginning was, do we want to comply with this or not? And the answer was not, we don't. You know, so we will do our own uh, recipe of, uh, um, uh, of, uh, of investing, uh, and we will uh, just uh, cater to uh, a suboptimal uh, uh, part of the universe of investors out there, which uh, in the years, I would say, helped us a great deal. To be out of the beaten path, to be a little bit out of the box, to be a little bit difficult to classify, and therefore our asset growth has always been quite slow, especially at the beginning. It has accelerated as of late because of performance, but you know, at the beginning, especially, it's been quite rocky. And but I think that that it it paid off, and it created also some credibility of you know, if you have a certain view, we pursue it to the end of it. We don't have to compromise, we don't have to step back just because of what is happening on the investor basis, because people, they don't believe in us anymore, they leave us. You know, I think it paid off over the years so to be, uh, to be uh, like, a, um, uh, to be applying uh, this, uh, this kind of integrity of thinking uh, and this, uh, uh, this uh, attitude of non, no compromise attitude, which does not mean to be stubborn and do not change your mind in the face of evidence. It does not mean that, but it means uh, not to change uh, your mind uh, in the face of evidence because, uh, you know, like uh, you get some uh, uh, immediate and short-term commercial gains. That is something that we didn't compromise on. And it paid over the years. So the, 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 the funds, the hedge funds have been of various natures. As I said, the Fasanara uh, has been an hedge fund uh, positioned as a multi-strategy fund, following the opportunity wherever it arises. Today, we are almost 10 years in it. So next year is going to be year number 10 of Fasanara, uh, next year in April. Um, it has been a super rocky ride. Uh, this uh, attitude of uh, uh, no compromise and uh, um, inability to, to flex to commercial terms, for example, has uh, led us into being broke almost um, almost broke twice over the period. Uh, and uh, the last time is also not long ago. It was in 2015 where we almost uh, went under um, due to a number of uh, pitfalls uh, of our strategies and also. Uh, you know, like uh, the the, you know, the the difficulty to cover cost, uh, but luckily enough, we we recovered from both uh, instances and uh, um, and uh, and eventually it worked out uh, uh, better for us. And uh, nowadays we are in a more healthy state uh, uh, with uh, more assets under management, uh, uh, a more diversified business model uh, across different uh, revenue lines and across different uh, strategies. Uh, that we can um, uh, feel is more resilient against economic shocks, against financial shocks, against uh, also uh, you know the gyration, gyrations that uh, that are there in the markets and should be there in the markets. Um, some of our uh, strategies have been more successful than others, but uh, you know I would say that over the course of the past uh, you know five years uh, we have been uh, uh, we have been uh, you know hitting uh, on the right uh, course of action. So we have been uh, uh, lining up. Uh, you know, funds, and we've been growing funds uh, in multiple directions that uh, we thought uh, there would be a need for. Over the past few years, you've been outspoken about your uh, bearish views of the economy. Uh, can you just give a little bit uh, of insight uh, about uh, what weaknesses do you see in the current landscape? Uh, and also, maybe you could also touch upon uh, about the funds uh, and the, the ideas that you think uh, would be working going forward. Yeah, I mean, like uh, you know, our funds are like the 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 the, uh, the the all of our funds they start with a global macro outlook and a global market view, and our most uh, you know like uh, uh, so the the, the our the our strat the, the strategy that has been outstanding for the longest at Fazanara has been the global macro. Uh, the global macro has been uh, uh, riding uh, two different waves. At the beginning, uh, in the first few years of the Fasanara existence, and especially between 2014 to 2016, it was really about the deflationary boom markets, as we termed back then, which meant heavy, heavy, um, uh, heavy deflationary trends uh, coming off the view of secular stagnation uh, that has been popularized, uh, you know, like in recent times by uh, Lawrence Summers, but really dates back to the 30s. and uh, uh, writing that, so saying, uh, okay, the deflation is at play, central banks will do whatever it takes to counterbalance it, and they will create a deflationary boom. So boom in the financial assets, both, both bonds and equities. And then the second wave that we, uh, that we wrote about, you know, I would say getting the timing uh, 
not very precise, uh, which uh, in financial jargon means wrong, uh, is the deflationary bust, which is what probably happened in the first quarter of 2020 out of this exogenous factor of the coronavirus, but which we really predicted uh, uh, at all times over the course of the past two years at least. Uh, so even before Trump got elected, so it's probably three years by now. And uh, we got convinced that the ammunition in the central bank arsenal were running uh, uh, thin and that the deflationary bust forces would have been taking hold. Now, this clearly didn't happen in the time in which we uh, sus suspected um, for a number of reasons. I think that most of it is uh, because of the inability to, for, for, from central bankers in particular to, uh, to, to visualize a systemic risk uh, in the way in which they should have and which would have prevented also the severity of, the, of this recent market collapse and all of this chaotic price behavior, including the oil price behavior of yesterday, but going through a long list of market anomalies. But they, despite all of this, they decided to be rational about it and they decided to pump too much money into the economy, achieving very little in the real economy, but achieving very much in the financial markets. Both equities and bonds were, were propelled into their um, uh, paradoxic levels of valuations. So you had bonds trading negatively already in 2016, and I thought it wouldn't last, uh, at least not to that extent, but uh, uh, definitely it was just the beginning of it uh, because it uh, comes to 2020 and we have uh, the same amount or more uh, levels of uh, negative yield insecurities in the bond, on the bond side. And on the equity side, you know, propelling the market into uh, unbelievable valuations and also very concentrated markets uh, where, um, uh, where it trains uh, a very low diversity of the market structure, uh, where all of the market participants, uh, all of the investment strategies are doing the same thing despite being called differently. So our first line of thought has, thought has been, uh, despite the various marketing labeling of the different investment strategies, be it uh, ETFs, be it uh, risk parity, be it uh, risk premium, CTA, quant funds, low vol funds, you name it. Effectively, the whole market is doing one or two, one of two things, either long beta, long carry, or short vol and short tail risk. Without going too much into the details, you know, those two factors, long beta, long carry, and short vol, short tail risk, they disseminated across the market structure, making it incredibly fragile. Now, this was our intuition, right, of thinking that, okay, if the banks, the central banks keep on pumping liquidity into the markets, bringing down the value of assets uh, to this, bringing up the value of assets for both bonds and equities, bringing rates down to zero and into negative territory, they would be pushing mechanically investors into the riskier asset class because the market functions, the market piping functions as a, a, um, under the law of communicating vessels. So if you push them out of bonds, they will go into equity quite mechanically. This is otherwise what is called that there is no alternative or there is no place to hide. This is the common rationalization and the justification for people to go into uh, assets like equities at, at the wrong valuations, at the completely fanciful valuations. But this is exactly what, uh, what happened. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, we thought there would be more sanity checks along the way and uh, uh, a systemic risk would, would have been prevented. We thought that the policymaker would have been watching over financial stability because it's also in one of their is also one of their target, uh, um, uh, target in their utility function, but they didn't. And we ended up into these uh, twin bubbles across bonds and equities of gigantic proportions. And given the fact that we think that nothing is really valuable unless it's measurable, we started working on that uh, relentlessly, trying to build uh, indicators, quantitative indicators, which were looking at the systemic risk. And now the story goes in financial markets that when you look at risk, you should look at volatility. Volatility is, is, is intended as the common definition of risk in the market, which it is not, right? It's actually quite the opposite. But still, the whole industry looks at value at risk when they decide, when they need to decide the risk in a portfolio. They look at risk parity, allocating on the basis of risk units when, they, when, when you want to position a certain portfolio in a balanced way, and, and so on and so forth. And what we, um, you know, we argued in our research pieces and what we also try to quant quantify is that uh, actually it's quite the opposite when it comes to systemic risk. It may be true on short uh, gyrations of the market, but when it comes to systemic risk, which are these big, big long waves and the big cliffs in the market, you should be looking at it uh, from the opposite standpoint, like Heyman Minsky has been uh, uh, teaching us uh, several decades ago, 
is that the stability is destabilizing. And is actually after prolonged the period of market stability uh, and, and the economic stability that you see investor actors and the uh, market agents doing all sorts of mistakes and all sorts of overextension into lending, overextension into indebtedness, um, you know, buying things that they should be, shouldn't be buying at the completely the wrong price, keeping on buying corporate bonds at zero uh, interest rates and things like this. And then obviously you end up in a, in a trap, right? With, because at some point there is a, the day of reckoning and all of a sudden you give up all of your gains that you accumulated so smoothly and so slowly over years in one shot, in one night. And we, we became very interested in this. I have to say it didn't attract any investor because you know, investors, they want to make short-term gains. They don't want to make you know, too long visions. So it didn't work commercially, but again, our job and our determination was not to commercially compromise and to keep doing what we thought was the right thing to do. And we started building all of these indicators, uh, which were quantitative indicators based not on vol, but on complexity theory. I will not go into the theory of it because uh, it probably uh, it goes uh, too much off uh, tangent, but uh, basically those indicators are based on the structure of the market and not on volatility. So they're strictly speaking, not volatility-based indicators, but quantitative indicators based on uh, the structure of the market and the, the, the pipe, the piping of the market. It's a great take uh, on, on risk and uh, just goes to show you uh, how uh, different market participants uh, perceive really like fundamental aspects of the market uh, completely differently. And it's, uh, it, it, it's fascinating. And uh, tell us a bit more about these risk indicators, uh, how successful they were so far. We have two family of indicators, short term and long term. The long term indicators, they predicted that there would be a crash already two years ago. Obviously, they were too early. The short-term indicators, they were more precise and they could tell us, uh, comes January, that we were in a also dangerous, dangerous territory from a short-term standpoint. Now, the market fragility concept is one that says that uh, the market is ready to transition. We also call it uh, the critical transition hypothesis. Tr critical transitions in, uh, in physics and in ecosystems are those transitions that they are taking place uh, where like a system looks... Uh, uh, looks stable, but is only, uh, you know, like uh, optically stable. In reality, it's very unstable and ready to transition. At some point, you reach a critical threshold where, uh, where change, change accelerates and you go into a severe rupture. And all of a sudden, you have a runoff effect uh, um, and an acceleration, a non-linear dynamic that takes hold. And this is exactly what happens when the system is, uh, uh, when you impose on the system a stressor. And the stress doesn't need to be big. In this case, it has been big. Obviously, the coronavirus is huge, but temporary. So it's huge for the magnitude of the impact, but also very limited in time, you can argue. But nevertheless, you know, it was a stressor and it provoked this kind of market debacle that we have seen. And now the story goes in our theory that we have seen only the, the first derivative of the move, which is the first one, which is what we call the quant quake, uh, similar style to 2007. In 2007, there was a quant quake that affected only the quant funds, where they lost 30% in a few days. Eventually, they recovered, and the broader market never really realized, because the quant funds were a small portion of the market. But guess what? Nowadays, under this theory of uh, uh, cross-dissemination of the same strategy all across long beta, long carry, and short ball, short tail, uh, you could argue that the quant or autopilot strategies in the market represent not 5%, but 90%, and which is uh, also... Um, you know, like uh, provable under uh, various uh, simulations. And uh, obviously the quant quake this time can be 10 times as bad as uh, during 2007. And this is exactly what happened because comes February, March, we have seen a 30, 35% uh, uh, drawdown on the S&P and, uh, and very funny moves all across because of uh, what I would uh, term uh, another quant quake 10 times worse. And uh, the other quant quake uh, is uh, like uh, basically a lot of quant funds that they had to deleverage very fast followed by all sorts of other autopilot vehicles. Um, you know, um, and we also know more specific funds that they, they were doing on a very leveraged basis, uh, basis trades and, and all sorts of things that uh, were, they could only be done because of the quiet markets uh, in the previous 10 years. And, uh, and obviously that brought them into the cliff, uh, uh, not knowing that uh, the cliff and margin calls and overcompensation to the downside could uh, take place. First derivative, quant quake. Now we think of these fragile markets, there is a second derivative to come, which is daily the liquidity risk and daily redemptions from daily, daily vehicles. 
uh, it is what we call the daily liquidity crisis. And we think, we think it is the second derivative. We think it's, uh, we are picturing a world in which there is a, 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 a redemption event of two to four trillion dollars uh, on a daily basis, one day, which will drive uh, markets into another lockdown and fresh new lows. Uh, and we think the S&P will see new lows. We think the S&P will dive below 2,000. And then it will stop at some point between 1,500 and 2,000. Uh, you know, last time around, uh, a few years back, uh, it went all the way down to 1,685, I believe. Uh, this time it could, back, it could go again back there or even a little bit lower. I don't know. But definitely, I think uh, we could see a scenario where it goes below 2,000 before eventually recovering, but not in a V-shaped recovery, in, uh, in the best of cases, in a U-shaped uh, type of recovery. Um, this is our view. This is our view on the public markets. It's a view that has got to do with the uh, uh, extreme financializations of markets and extreme departures from fundamentals and from and the valuations being uh, in a cuckoo land. Um, we think a chaotic uh, outburst uh, will keep on happening. We've seen the latest uh, yesterday with the oil price going negative by $40 at the settlement on the May contract. Um, it's uh, it's uh, one of the contributors to that debacle in addition to the cost of storage has been this uh, uh, USO uh, ETF that represents a third of uh, the market flows and which has been, become too big for the underlying. Uh, and uh, uh, again, uh, we can see that financialization has taken hold and has, has gone to a place uh, where it makes no uh, economic sense and that creates uh, uh, trouble. Another one is the gold ETF that could see uh, you know, something similar, maybe on the other way, but you know, still uh, leading to a collapse of the ETF instrument itself. We've seen another one in February of 2018, which was the XIV, which was one of the short uh, ball ETFs. It was another one that we had analyzed at the time and we thought it could be at the risk of a wipeout. And indeed, indeed, it got wiped out. We think that in the ETF community, there are a lot of these instruments which are badly, badly structured and where the fragility is baked in, in the cake. So we think, we think that this can lead the market into a downturn. But guess what? We are actually positive on the real economy. So probably we are the real contrarian because these days, uh, uh, you know, um, everybody's negative on the real economy and negative also on financial markets. But, uh, uh, you know, two months ago, everybody was really blue sky for financial markets and the real economy. So they changed their mind very quickly, uh, helped by the exogenous factor of the coronavirus. And we think that now we are, now that the S&P has recovered all the way up to 2,800, we are bearish on it but actually positive on the real economy and positive on, on, on credit markets, especially investment grade, but also selectively high yield. And I'll explain a little bit that, uh, saying that, um, you know, I believe that the real economy, of course, we are going into a recession. And of course, the recession may last a quarter or two, but I, don't th but I still think this is an exogenous shock and a temporary uh, impact on the market. I don't see durable uh, damages to the economy, also because of the right uh, government intervention which has uh, uh, produced uh, uh, monumental monetary printing and monumental also fiscal this time. So finally, uh, some of the major economies have gone fiscal. Uh, and, uh, and I believe therefore that, uh, you know, most of the damage uh, that is visible and can be even more visible in the financial markets due to a huge disconnect to valuations and fundament between valuations and fundamentals can indeed not be a reflection of the real economy, but just a problem of its own. When, uh, uh, financial assets, uh, they grow uh, recklessly. Uh, they go to a level where they fall under their own weight, uh, to use uh, the words of Claudio Borio. Um, and so, like, I think that the uh, uh, real economy can, can, can sustain the, the heat from the virus uh, after a couple of quarters of uh, uh, severe recession, yes. But, uh, um, but after that, uh, there can be a recovery. Um, now, how the money from the governments and from central banks is spent is the real deal, right? I'm positive on it as well. Although most of the market commentators these days I, I, I hear having the opposite view to mine, which is the fact that the usual beneficiaries to this uh, central bank printing and, and fiscal expansion will be the large corporations, the ultra net individuals and, uh, and the large banks. And uh, once again, you know, income inequality will increase further. And I actually disagree to that. I think that this crisis is giving us the opportunity to tackle that and take care of it. And, uh, and then narrow the income inequality from the top end by having a market which is less expensive, so the S&P going down, and from the bottom up by having the money going to the right segment of the economies 
primarily SME, small and medium enterprises, individuals and consumers instead of their large employers. And uh, I believe we have a chance to do that. Of course, there are cases in which, uh, you know, big uh, tycoons are asking for government bailouts and they are getting it. But I think this is like just the headlines. But then we should be looking at what happens next. And I believe this is the opportunity to, to, uh, to do something good about it. And if we do it, and if we tackle income inequality, that would be also be beneficial to the real economy. And one more uh, healthy and sustainably healthy economy can, can emerge from all of these with a cheaper equity market on top. You raised a number of uh, interesting points, uh, but there is one particular one uh, that I want to build up on. Uh, so you, you mentioned that you broadly classify uh, hedge fund strategies these days into two categories. Uh, so the, the long beta and long carry. And the second one is the short tail risk uh, and short vol. In the evidence of the recently published data, which uh, shows uh, how uh, performance of some of the biggest and most successful hedge funds uh, was outright um, suboptimal uh, in the in the March and in April. Uh, what is what is your kind of outlook for the uh, asset management industry and like hedge fund uh, industry as a whole? Are you excited about the uh, greater adoption and application of some of the most uh, sophisticated? Uh, techniques, uh, big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and integration of the more kind of autonomous uh, strategies in there. What, what's your outlook for the industry? Well, I have, I have to say that, uh, you know, like obviously, like we tend to be quite bearish about things, I have to admit, so I want to put it uh, out, out there as a spoiler, spoiler alert or a disclaimer, because for people not to take really what I think at face value, but, you know, I think I'm bearish on the industry, especially the traditional asset management industry. I'm also bearish on banks. Like, so I'm, I'm bearish on the buy side, I'm bearish on the sell side. On banks, it has been our view for years now that banks would be going down to zero. And it, it is happening. And it's nothing to do with the coronavirus. It was happening already beforehand. Uh, well before the coronavirus, banks were 90% off the highs in Europe. I'm talking about Europe. But the, the, the US will not be dramatically different at some point, especially now that rates are zero there as well. And, uh, and curves are very flat. And so I think that uh, you know, the banking sector is at risk uh, under a secular, secular threat. Similar views we have on oil, by the way, we've been saying uh, all, all, uh, ever since uh, 2016 that oil would be trading below $20. Uh, and we think that that is the right place for it to trade at uh, because of secular trends, nothing to do with the ETFs, dislocations, nothing to do with the uh, shortage of uh, storage space, nothing to do with the OPEC plus, uh, it's really a secular trend of uh, uh, where one asset class is uh, dismissed and is substituted by newcomers. The asset management industry is, uh, is no different. I mean, like the traditional asset management industry is a really an ex existential crisis. Uh, not just the 2 and 20 model, the 2% management fee and 20% performance fee model, which was already dead uh, two or three years ago. But even the 1 to 10 uh, is too expensive. If all of what you do is uh, to do what everybody else does, which means going long, long carry, short vol, short tail risk, and, uh, and uh, having a view on correlation like everybody else, of course, you cannot claim fees for that. And, uh, um, and obviously that model is, is wrong. And, uh, and uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, we are at a, you know, in a transformational industry, in transformational times all abroad. So I, I buy into my own uh, critical transformation hypothesis when it comes also to market agents, not just uh, valuations for public assets. Uh, and I think that uh, as a managers in the future, they really need to think so much, so as banks, like uh, what their business model is gonna be, it cannot be the same as in the past because it was already dying well before this uh, moment of crisis. And uh, I think that nowadays, uh, if you are a bank, you need to think about all these uh, FinTech trends. And as Fasanara, we are also uh, leading uh, those FinTech uh, trends uh, efforts uh, in a number of different countries. Uh, uh, and so we, we believe in it and we put our money where our mouth is. Uh, as an asset manager as well, you need to think about being a neo fund, you know, a fund of new generation that doesn't do the same things in the same way, that is innovative and uh, unorthodox and uh, tries to give something new and something different to whatever else is already available out there um, and is done by much larger players, players than yourself. I think that this, that this is not a time to be visionaries. It's just a time to be realistic and to recognize the, 
the secular, secular de declines in some industries as a, a matter of life. Do not try to counterfeit them. Do not try to ride them for a bit longer in exchange for fees and commercial gains because uh, that can be fruitful in the short term, but uh, is definitely a losing proposition in the long term. And by the way, this brings us to uh, a problem of the markets these days, which is not really only markets, but it's also uh, the economy at large and really maybe the human society, which is a short-termism. You know, the all of the market and the, the economy at large is looking at short-termism as the only problem. So it's continuously swapping uh, short-term solutions for long-term problems. This has happened in the market where effectively QE was a way to um, come to the rescue of a 5% drawdown uh, on the S&P. It was all it took for the Federal Reserve to step in. And we had the last quarter of 2018 when the market went down at 10%, a little bit more. And immediately the Fed could do an amazing U-turn from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing with rate cuts, with talks of MMT. It was well before the coronavirus that we could see the smoking gun of their, uh, of their uh, of the fragility in the market that they were aware of, but also the fragile mentality to tackle with the first few levels of pain. And I could argue that the same is true nowadays on, on, the, uh, on the government interventions uh, following the coronavirus, where the coronavirus is obviously very painful because it leads to very visible losses of human lives, where you have a shortage of ICU beds, and therefore you are forced to do uh, terrible things like, uh, uh, you know, like that you would never be doing in a, in normal circumstances, uh, like it, in the, you, you don't allow people to see their, their loved ones uh, in the last few moments of their life and things like that. And, the, and, the, and the, the inability to cope with pain and the inability to really tolerate uh, uh, you know, very you know, levels of pain has, has led to these monumental interventions and has led into these uh, also um, you know, incredible reactions like the full lockdown is, because the full lockdown is a very, you know, monumental intervention on an economy, and it can never be a sustainable course of action because it's unsustainable, because simply the economy is not designed, but even, you know, human life is general, in general, is not designed to be locked up at home for too long. So, but the, the type of intervention is, a, is, a, is a basically a, a, a consequence of the same kind of mentality that is really run, running across. I wouldn't say Generation X or Millennials is really uh, nowadays uh, affecting all of us, uh, and uh, which is a short-termism. The, the inability to suffer pain and the rescue to short-term solutions uh, in any way possible. It's not just a palatable, politically palatable solution, it's just a solution in general that, uh, that these days uh, is, uh, is a winner. I think that the, if the same is applied to asset managers, it will lead to damages and disasters. So I think this is the time to recognize long-term trends at play and, uh, and, uh, uh, and take a view. Uh, and the view may come at the cost of less commercial fees, the cost of less asset under management. It doesn't matter. But it's still uh, uh, to, be, you know, to be true to oneself at this very moment uh, is the right thing to do uh, because uh, things are changing anyway and they, have, uh, they are changing at an accelerating speed. I like how you say it, uh, that uh, some of these companies need to be uh, realistic rather than uh, trying to be visionaries. And it certainly sounds like this, this, uh, this day, these days uh, there is a huge emphasis that goes on the innovation and trying to be creative and all of this. Uh, and uh, I think it created almost like a huge gap between uh, what people promise and what people deliver. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, universal uh, across industries, uh, perhaps always uh, more notable examples. Uh, from the technology sector, uh, but it uh, certainly applies well uh, to the financial services industry. I want to ask you a final question. Um, what advice would you give to yourself if you were uh, starting off today? Well, like uh, at the time when I started my career, it was all about the large employers and, um, you know, the, the, the most uh, like um, prestigious uh, names out there. Um, and at the time, it was literally the banks that, that, that have been lucky to join, like Mary Lynch and uh, uh, JP Morgan. Obviously, there are many others, and there were many others. Uh, these days, uh, it could probably be the big tech names like Google, Amazon, Facebook, and things like that. I would probably propose to not do the same that I did, so, which is uh, to join those large names. You know, these days are more unstructured 
than those days back then. And uh, it probably pays off to be in smaller and more dynamic organizations, maybe less prestigious, but uh, with, uh, with a view about the future and with uh, the ability to change direction very quickly if need be. When you are in a large employer, the large employer will try to you know, securitize you by uh, narrowing down your expertise in, in most ways possible. And uh, nowadays you want the opposite. You want to keep uh, being versatile, open-minded, flexible, thinking out of the box, and, uh, and move uh, with, the, with the flow, really. And uh, um, so I would probably propose to do something different than what, than what I did. And uh, be believers, you know, like believe a bit in what you do and uh, that the future will, uh, will uh, assess itself and uh, will uh, give you the right answers uh, that you may not be able to see right uh, at the outset. And uh, also to, you know, to, to look for like-minded people that uh, uh, they, they, they do have a vision about the future. This is very important these days because uh, um, it's too easy to, uh, to be going for, um, you know, again, to fall prey to this, uh, uh, you know, uh, modern religion of uh, short-termism. The modern religion of short-termism will tell you today to get a, a, um, a good job in a big employer for a big check. Uh, but, you know, like this is, I don't think it's the, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily think this is the right course of action given the market environment, given how uh, dynamic it is. Uh, it has become, a, uh, you know, we are in chaotic, you know, we, we, in our research, we call it the edge of chaos. It's the, it, it is that transition zone uh, after you have really unsettled uh, the status quo. Uh, where rare rare events become typical, where the, uh, the 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 size of the change is bigger and the speed of the change is much uh, uh, faster, is much accelerated, which is really the definition for chaotic uh, environment. And in a chaotic environment, you want to be nimble, dynamic, ready to move, uh, and with the people with the vision and people which are dynamic, uh, nimble, and ready to move together with you. Mm-hmm. So, so it's those that uh, adapt the fastest, uh, survive and strive. Yeah, the, the fastest and the most adaptable will uh, survive. I believe so, yes. That's a good way to put it. Okay, Francesco, uh, let's leave it here. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Speak soon. Thank you, Nikita. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Speaking to Legends. I hope you found it to be useful and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this show... Please write a review on iTunes to support us. Stay tuned.